Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. My best and brightest student was so into it. And she was sitting in front of me the whole time. And on the last day of the retreat, finally, your vow of silence is broken. At about two in the morning, she climbs up to the roof of the retreat center and jumps off headfirst and lands about five feet from where I was sleeping. Shut up. It's another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. I don't need to tell you that because the way audio podcasts work is that you have to really know the name of my podcast and search for it and find it rather than you know some sort of online discovery where you end up clicking on it and might not be fully aware of the name of the show in any case i've wasted a good 15 seconds saying absolutely nothing and that is the show no hopefully there's a lot more interesting things to come in fact there definitely are because scott carney's on the podcast and he is a fascinating man who's written quite a few books and i think i'll get him on to talk about a few of his other experiences he's one of those journalists who's really immersive um, and really goes and finds out about their topic and gets involved in it and this one is about death by meditation and It's pretty insane. When he told me about this story, I was just like, yeah, this is an on-the-edge topic, 100%. Really, really fascinating and and scary. And it just shows what can happen when people are competing for status. It reminds me some of this of the Heaven's Gate cult, for example, uh, where where they ended up all um, killing themselves to ascend to a higher spiritual plane or or whatever it might be. Um, So meditation can also be, you know, scary and worrying Um, like anything else. I I think for the vast majority of people, it's not, of course, and it's really helpful for a lot of people, including Scott, who I believe practices it, or he was a teacher of it at some point. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I've got interesting ones coming up as well about revenge porn and another one about sex trafficking. So it's all getting quite edgy and it's a move away from some of the Scientology and Royal stuff of late just to sort of mix the podcast up a little bit. I hope you guys enjoy that. But now you're on the edge of meditation cults and how they can kill you with Scott Carney. But let's maybe start, Scott, with what meditation is. And we'll lead into the dark stuff you know, a bit after that. So what... What actually is meditation? That's a fascinating question. And it's like one of those questions that you just can't answer, right? It is, there are many different types of meditation. The Buddha taught several. Um, there's Hindu meditation. There's even Christian meditation. It's all over the place. But the idea is, it is a way to look inside, to see what is happening in your body um, by focusing on your sensations, on your breathing, on mantras, and uh, 
and it's a way to to turn your consciousness in a way to understand what your consciousness is all about. It's a way to look at yourself. Can that work on everyone? Because I feel like my like my cousin loves it. He he teaches meditation. He's really on it, and uh, and and he's a good. We're very close as well, and I've just never. I, I, my head can't seem to even start with it, you know? I, I mean, again, it is such a broad term, you know, it, it, whether you're look, you know, me, we could be meditating right now by talking with each other, but just by looking at each other, depending what teacher you ask. Um, and, you know, there's the, the typical one where you're, you know, you're, you're in that lotus position and you got your hands like on your knees. Like that's what most people think of as meditation. But you could also meditate. I know I wrote a book on uh, called What Doesn't Kill Us about jumping into ice water and and then controlling your emotions in ice water, that's also a meditation because you're focused on the inside. It's really what you're trying to get out of meditation, which is what's what was a more interesting question. Like, why are you doing it? Are you doing it to become a better, more well-adjusted person and, you know, sort of control your emotions? Are you trying to get superpowers and levitate off your cushion and shoot lasers out of your eyeballs? Some people do do that. Or are you, you know, or, or, or you know, what are you doing um, with your meditation? That is the real question. It is a technique or it is a, a variety of techniques to look inside and gain mastery over your body and mind. Uh-huh. So it's sort of, I guess the closest I get to it is if I like, I hurt myself or I, I know that you've talked about having canker sores, which we call mouth ulcers in the UK. I get really bad ones as well. Like, like my mouth explodes with them and I'm sort of telling myself like, hey, it's all in your mind. This is not a real thing. Just get on with it. Is that the closest thing I do to meditation? Um, I don't think that's going to work to get rid of your mouth ulcers. I don't think you could just like think, think at your <laughs> mouth ulcers to get rid of them. Um, but that, but yes, that would be a type of meditation if that's what you were doing. I just don't think it would be an effective um, type um, to do that. You know, we can get into the physiology of different types of meditations if you'd like. Um, you have a sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, and you have the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. And uh, in, in, and in general, most meditation is trying to get you deep into that rest and digest phase, trying to get you deep into that hard relaxation while remaining aware as you do it. But again, the term meditation is too big to say what you're what exactly we're talking about here. I, I actually what you've just said sort of makes sense to me it's sort of tapping into it's like you're hacking the system mm-hmm. a little bit um, I like that tell me um, should we get I want to get into the dark, like darkness let's get into some of this dark stuff so so you you wrote this book um, is it am I right in saying after hearing about the case of Ian Thorson Yes, the case of Ian Thorson is what started it. Um, but the, the actual, the, the origin moment actually happens, um, way back in 2005 for me when I was leading an abroad program in North India with a bunch of American college students. And, you know, I had lived in India at that point for, I think, about three years. Uh, I, I speak Hindi. I speak some Tibetan. Wow. I'd been, I, I'd lived in Tibet for a little while. Uh, and I know a lot about the Indic traditions of meditation. Um, you know, ideas of using mantras, which are sort of like words, uh, Sanskrit words or Tibetan words to, to, you know, focus your mind. And in Tibetan meditation, you're also looking at goddesses and you're, and you're thinking about your, or gods, and you're also thinking about your body becoming a god. It's very esoteric stuff. It's a very specific and intense type of meditation. Uh, and I took these students, 
onto a silent meditation retreat in the Tibetan tradition, which is called Lam Rim, um, the introductory step, steps to enlightenment. And we were going to be totally quiet. And although I was the program director, I was not teaching the meditation. I was just one of the students for this component. And we were totally silent. And in these traditions, being silent lets you go inside. You want to reduce the stimulus of the outside world so that you really have time to explore where your mind goes inside of these practices. And after seven days, you know, I was sitting in the back and I'm actually not very good with silence. I want to be, um, I want to talk about my ideas and it was really a struggle for me to get into it. But my best and brightest student, a woman named Emily O'Connor, uh, was so into it. And she was sitting in front of me basically this whole whole time. And on the last day of the retreat, you know, you're finally, your vow of silence is broken. And so you can start talking and I'm sitting with all the other kids and being like, oh my God, I had all these realizations and things like that. And she just sort of went off to the side and wanted to like go introspective. I go to bed um, and at about two in the morning, She's been writing in her journal her ideas. She climbs up to the roof of the retreat center at the Root Institute in Bodh Gaya and jumps off headfirst and lands about five feet from where I was sleeping. And shut up. And I get up and I'm and I see her corpse in the blue moonlight. <gasps> and, and I am suddenly responsible for figuring out what happened to her and bringing her corpse back to the United States. It is the most traumatic, difficult thing I've ever been in. It was the instigating moment for all of the books I've written since then. And her, you know, the first thing I do is, you know, after dealing with the cops and there's a murder investigation initially, it's a really intense event. I grab her journal wow. and I read, you know, her thoughts and, and, what it goes is from this normal student experience in India, you know, oh my God, there's cows on the road. Oh, I, you know, I'm having some spiritual insights, you know, the normal sort of surface layer stuff to the moment we get into the retreat center, she starts realizing in herself that she it has connection to these scriptures. She understands death and nirvana and bliss at a very deep level. And she realizes that she needs to end her life and leave her body at that moment in order to get to the next level of, of realizations. And the last words in her journal are, I am a bodhisattva, which means it's a Tibetan version of an angel. Um, the idea of a bodhisattva is this realized being who is enlightened and decides to stay on earth and help every other sentient being getting enlighten get enlightened instead of going towards nirvana, which is sort of a cessation moment, a sort of the Buddhist heaven you could call nirvana. And I was just profoundly shocked. And I mean, this is, I'm a 27-year-old I'm guy at this point. I'm pretty young. You know, I speak Hindi. I've, I've done some interesting things, but this is really hard for me because the idea for meditation in that tradition is that you're trying to learn how to become a better person, become better adjusted to um, to experience bliss and all these positive emotions. How did that transform into such a traumatic and terrible thing where someone takes their own life? And this is what set me off on my career as an investigative journalist in general and is the genesis point for the book, The Enlightenment Trap, where I tried to understand how meditation can go so terribly wrong. Scott, I didn't expect that 
twist halfway through and um i, I realize now that saying shut up wasn't um didn't it probably wasn't the right thing to say but i just was so shocked and i didn't mean for you to actually shut up but that's that's absolutely insane to to what extent do you think she is speaking when she or, or writing abstractly is it you know to what extent is this like okay all everything is one and i want to be this sort of righteousness being or whatever and to what extent is it just like does, does she does she really know that she's just going to be dead when she dies you know that's what i mean i've asked that in a bad way but you know what i mean no no um i i mean i think that's those are very good questions you should also add another question on there was was she a bodhisattva right let's ask the three questions and um and Yes, she knew she was going to die because the passages right before that sort of discuss um, how horrible and painful this process is going to be, but she, she has to get through it. And so she knew that her moment was going to be a difficult transition from life to death. And she was aware of that as far as I can interpret from her writings. I mean, any writing can have sort of a variety of interpretations. Um, you can read her words in, in my book, The Enlightenment Trap, to make up your own mind. Uh, but she had come to the point to realize, and this is a real problem in religious teachings, especially meditative teachings, is that they teach you that there's the real world that we live in, the normal world where of cause and effect, where if I pick up a glass of water, I drink this glass of water, but it was because I was thirsty. In the Tibetan tradition, it was actually because of my karma. To, uh, my past lives made me feel that sensation of thirst at that moment. And it's actually all connected to this other reality, a truer reality that, that we cannot see and we can only access through meditation. This is the danger. It's called spiritual bypassing. It's the idea that there's a spiritual explanation for everything that happens in the real world that you can't detect with science. You can only detect with introspection. And she believed her own life was not real and the meditative experience was real. And many, many traditions teach that. I mean, think about in the Christian tradition, right, where people do insane things like a crusade and they murder bunches of people because they know that the real reality is heaven and they're going to this perfect place. And to, in the Tibetan traditions and the Hindu traditions and many meditative traditions, that is the same thing. So when she took her life, she didn't think it was going to be the end of her journey. She thought she would be reborn a bodhisattva immediately. Mm. And, so you know, genuinely, she really, like concretely, she thought that. Concretely. I mean, it's in the text. And and then, yeah. you know, I spent the next year um, asking two questions. Uh, and, and one was because I had to, so I wrote this book on organ trafficking called The Red Market, which is really sort of the first book that was about that, you know, where I become an investigative journalist and people really know what I do. And one of the things that I noticed first with dealing with her body is that once she had left it, you know, once you die, the your body becomes the property and ownership of other people. And, and they, you know, they move your body through various ways. And I found in India, people were wanting pieces of her body for different things through funerary traditions and police investigations. Um, there's a whole organ trafficking thing that happens in India, although that wasn't her particular case. That led me down this rabbit hole of investigating organ trafficking where I you know, found how people buy and sell human body parts and all this very physical part of death. Uh, and that became a central part of my early career, writing for Wired and NPR and all those people. Then the other thing that was going on in my mind is how can somebody take their own life 
in pursuit of bliss. And so I talked to um, holy men throughout North India, both in the Hindu and the Tibetan traditions. I asked her, well, what was she a bodhisattva? Is there an Ur reality, Ur meaning like a super reality, that is more real than this world? And had she found it? And all of the lamas that I spoke to, you know, guys in robes who've been studying meditation for 10 years or 20 years or, you know, 30 years, all said, no, she wasn't. She had gone crazy. Uh, and it's a very common thing in the Tibetan tradition to have a condition called lung, which, is, um, which means wind. And, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, you have these chakras. Maybe you've heard of the spinning wheels of energy in your body. It is a separate yeah, body so. to your own body. It's not your kidneys and your intestines and your heart. You have this like sort of like energy channels called nadis that go through your body. And what they say in this spiritual anatomy is that you can get those, those chakras can eventually essentially become a hurricane where everything's out of whack and you go crazy. And it, it, interestingly enough, Westerners are very, very susceptible to the Tibetan medical condition called lung. And it's because we always want to achieve things. In meditation, you want to like zen out. You want to you, you, zen out, right? That's a meditation phrase. You want, to, you want to get into yourself and you want to like let your ego go. But Americans... British and anyone who was raised on Return of the Jedi or, um, you know, uh, uh, Eddie Murphy's The Golden Child, we have this idea that if you go to the East, right, if you ditch your own corrupt Christian traditions, because we all know there's problems with Christianity, right, and you go East, uh, you will find someone who is, has figured out the spiritual perfection and they're going to be in the Himalayas for some reason. And, and we have that, you know, Batman and Batman begins. He, he goes into Tibet and he finds a blue lotus and then he learns kung fu. I don't know how that all connects, but it does. Like, um, we, the Jedi is chosen. Yoda is modeled on the Dalai Lama. The Ewoks speak high speed Tibetan. This is all true, right? This is, we, we have, we have romanticized the East and we, we, we conflate it with superhero dumb. And when you're meditating, a lot of us are meditating because we want to become enlightened. This idea of like, oh my God, the enlightened master, they can do things like a Jedi, walk through walls, read minds, um, these various things that are actually mentioned in the yogic traditions. Um, if you read uh, Patanjali's The Yoga Sutras, they're called siddhis, which means miracles. And there's things, you, and there are things that you can supposedly get through meditation. Um, you learn these siddhis and then you can do, you know, super hearing, super um, uh, resistance to cold, levitation, these sorts of things are in the yoga sutras. And then we're like, oh my God, I can meditate my way to becoming a Jedi. But the problem is that there's a cultural translation problem going on. It's like if someone had never heard of Christianity and they're like, hey, that Jesus guy was amazing. I love the idea that I could duplicate fishes. I could make some wine. I could raise myself from the dead. And, they, and that is what they fixate on. It's all the miracles and not the actual teachings. And that's what so many Americans and Westerners do when they go East. They come with this idea of I can work hard. And, and if I work hard, I will achieve these goals. And it's this like toxic mix of, of belief, cultural misunderstandings, and also weird history that happened in Tibet in the medieval era that we could, I guess, go into if you want to. Hey, it's Andrew. 
If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Well, I, what I'm thinking of the, while you're speaking is obviously I've done a lot of uh, episodes for this this channel about cults and things. And uh, there are a lot of parallels and just things. And maybe some of these are unfair stereotypes that I have of some parts or extreme parts of meditation communities is just as with religions and cults, you have this sort of competitive modesty, uh, competitive virtue, or like I can be not, I can not care about anything superficial even more than everyone else. And um, you have all these things. And, and what, what you were saying about how she wanted to ascend to the next life felt like um, Heaven's Gate. Have you given that much thought, the Heaven's Gate cult? Sure. I'm Heaven's Gate. Um, I, I'm writing about Geisha Michael Roach's group called Diamond Mountain. I mean, all of them have different ways that they spiritually bypass, right? But they all share the idea that there is a, are rules to the world that are not to be determined through science. They're, be to, they're to be determined by revelation and hearing someone else's revelation, right? You know, because I didn't have the revelation, but this guy, and they're usually guys, right? This guy did know what it was, and I believe him because... And this is the super interesting and the really important thing that everyone gets wrong about cults is that when you start, when you join the cult, 
life gets better almost always. Like you have a need, um, you know, maybe you're disconnected from society. Maybe you have a mental illness or a um, depressive tendencies, financial problems, whatever it is, you have a problem. And when you first join the cult, you your life gets better. There's people saying that they like you. They're listening to you and other people don't listen to you. And you, you know, you genuinely learn good things. And with meditation, it's very well established that when you start meditating, you get better attention. Your, you know, your, you pay, your life, you know, your, your health often gets better. Um, you, you become more aware of yourself and that makes you feel good. I mean, this is what we call the law of, um, diminishing returns or what I call it the law of speedy gains. It's the same idea. You take up a new practice and you get better rapidly. And, as we do that, as you get into this thing, you're learning their meditation technique, you're watching your body change. And when you're meditating, time speeds up, it slows down. You sort of realize that these cool things are going on in you that you've never bothered to look at before. And everything gets better. It's only then after you've had that speedy gain, um, you know, with the law of diminishing returns, there's that tapering off. And then they sort of sell you this thing, which is like, and I can keep, I can make that gain keep going up if you sign up for my course, if you, um, you know, double down on my tantric teachings. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what um, Heaven's Gate used as an upsell, but it ended up with them realizing the hail bop was going to come and they're going to get levitated into the, the comet, right? That's that wearing Nike sneakers. Uh, and once you sort of buy into the more crazy ideas, like the more a abstract that organization is, you realize that you've actually become isolated from the community at large. You have this weird idea, whatever it might be, right? Electrical signals are controlling my mind, for instance. And if you tell someone else that, or, you know, they're going to be like, mm, that's weird. And you're like, well, and that feels like a negative, negative thing. You're like, they, they don't, they don't understand the true reality that I understand. And this, like, this accelerates your accepting everything that that cult leader says. Is that what you, if you're, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, and 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 you can start accepting more and more things. And one of the dangers in the Tibetan traditions is that they have those upsells, right? You, 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 you learn meditation and your body becomes better. You become more aware. And there's all this like good stuff and all these promises that they offer you, but it's also really hard. And your beliefs also get a little weird. You're like, you're like, okay, you know, the goddess Tara is doing this to me right now. And I'm learning that everyone else around me has a karmic lesson they're giving to me. But if you start explaining karma to somebody who's not a Tibetan Buddhist, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? Like, you got thirsty because in your karma in, the, in, in previous lives, you didn't drink enough water or whatever that karmic thing happens. And you, you, the, the reaction of an individual is to become more in, intense in that community, not to draw themselves out and be like, wait a minute, maybe I need to take a step back and think if my ideas are really rational or not. There's always another level, isn't there? Just another level, another level, whether even just multi-level marketing, Scientology, things like that. And you're absolutely right that, I mean, Scientology, some of the teachings they have that don't involve Lord Zeno and things like that, uh, they, they're helpful for a lot of people. They're like, you know, you're in control of your life. You pulled it in. They say, you know, whatever happens to you, 
that's not great advice for a lot of people but for some people the ones who join it just it's just right for their lives in that particular moment it makes them happy uh, and they keep you keep ascending you're you're gaining in status i suppose with with the people in your community you care about but then these things happen hey when that happened when she jumped off the roof i know like as a journalist myself as well you get caught up you're writing these books and they become sort of book subjects and things like that but on an emotional level for you witnessing that 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 must have hit hard what was that like witnessing her die yeah it was the it was devastating i mean it was it was a, a moment in my life where every it was the turning point in many ways because one, it was a turning point for, you know, I was a meditator, right? I was, I, 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 there are things about it that I liked. I mean, I wasn't on the sort of tantric crazy side, but it, it made me aware that, that not everyone's promises are real. And then dealing with who was my, you know, she was my favorite student in the group. She was driven. She was the, um, we had students who were more flighty, who were talking about it like Atlantis and their own spiritual insights. And I was like, you're just crazy. And like those people ended up being more resilient, interestingly enough, because their ideas were so out there that they weren't going to be taken by just one idea and make that control their life. She was the one who was like, so driven, straight A student, studied yoga at home, had the perfect lotus posture. She was someone who who could follow the rules. And then when the rules told her to go a certain direction, she was going to triple and quadruple down. And that's a fascinating thing about this. It, it, it's that you don't expect the the most together person to be the one who goes all in on this. But all you need to do is just switch some of your fundamental understandings about the world, just like 10 degrees. And that type A person goes down the road of madness, much more so than the person who's just, you know, takes everything at once and just is like, yeah, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, and that, that was, um, that was shocking to me. Uh, of course, dealing with the police investigation, dealing with the autopsy, dealing with those things were very, very visceral. And it made me really understand a lesson in death that I had not ever had to face before. Uh, and I think that actually some good things have come out of that for me. I mean, there's also this idea called a, a bodhisattva in the Tibetan tradition. Is, is There could be bodhisattva, the 10,000 armed Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig or one of these like God type bodhisattvas with a capital B, but there is also the idea of like a small B bodhisattva, like just somebody who is there for you at your time in life and is able to help you and guide you in your own life. And I do think that perhaps there is an argument to be made that Emily's death taught me, you know, a lot about living and dying and, and spreading this message about like some of the insanity of, of meditation. It, there are good things that can come out of it. I mean, the, life is not only a great, um, I don't look at her and think that she was just a horrible person for having done this. I think she made a terrible error. And, and I think that spreading these messages is very, very important for the health of meditators everywhere. So in that sense, in that specific sense, she was sort of a bodhisattva. Uh, and, and I think that it, maintaining these, this sort of understanding about things is very healthy and very useful because nothing in the world is black and white. Nothing is like a definite answer. And also, I don't know what happens when we die. You don't know what happens when we die. There are things that science cannot answer because we don't have the tools 
and maybe will never be able to answer. And I think that there is, there are, are, that mystery is very important. It's part of the, the, the interesting thing about being alive and being a human. And there's nothing wrong to ask those questions. What is wrong is, you know, to, to is when asking those questions leads to bad effects in your life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and did did her family, did Emily's family get in touch? Did 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 you ever worry people might, you know, you were the teacher there? Did you feel that people might hold you perhaps unfairly responsible in some way? Oh, of course. I mean, that was you know, the uh, I remember writing in a in a, a journal or a letter at, at that time that the difference between a hero and a villain is just a matter of perspective. I mean, they could have easily have said that I caused her death, which I didn't, but, you know, it's a very emotionally uh, difficult point. And I, I, I certainly have had many, many communications with her family, although I don't, um, I don't talk about those things on the record. No, I understand. Okay, well, we don't, we don't need to. Um, but but, but um, absolutely, yeah, I'm flabbergasted, really. It's not, I mean, I actually got in touch with you to talk about, you know, you mentioned it before, the body stuff and the stealing of organs and things like that. Uh, and then you mentioned this, and it's just something I had no idea about. So you then got on to tell me the story of Ian Thorson. Right. So I always knew that I wanted to write about Westerners who go to India and go crazy. Right After this moment when she died, I was like, I need to dig into this question. But I didn't want to write told only about her. I wanted to look into the broader experiences of people. So I spent, um, you know, I did, in this year that I was looking at interviewing lamas, I was also collecting journals of other people who had died on meditation retreats or gone crazy. And I, and I found uh, one doctor in, in Delhi who said that he admits about 100 patients a year with what is called India syndrome. Um, they go to India and they learn that they're Shiva or they learn that they're Krishna or Buddha. And then they go crazy and they end up in a mental institution. So it's not just thinking you're crazy. You actually end up diagnosed with this. And there are about 100 people at that point per year ending up in institutions. And having lived in India for a long time, I've met many people who are on that road. You know, people who are totally spiritual bypassing every time, but maybe didn't end up at the clinical level. Um, and as I was you know, researching that, I, uh, um, I got a letter from someone, I forget who, saying that Ian Thorson had just died on a three-year meditation retreat in the Arizona desert. Uh, under the tutelage of this man named Geshe Michael Roach, who is a white Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Geshe is the equivalent of a PhD in Tibetan Buddhism issued by um, Tibetan universities. And he was a white guy who went to India, learned some Tibetan and Sanskrit, studied then in New Jersey, and, and, and was tasked with bringing Tibetan Buddhism to the United States, to the West, and teaching it in accessible American English. Like, when you're talking to a Tibetan monk, things get very esoteric very quickly. There, it was actually useful to have a white guy teaching these concepts, but he was also very captivated by an experience of enlightenment that he found when in his teen years, when he... Uh, saw himself floating above the earth and realizing he was responsible for all sentient beings, basically realizing he was a bodhisattva, just like my student. Um, and then he, he made this huge religious movement in Arizona. Uh, he, Roach took 
a, you know, and this happens very frequently. He took a young, hot, 20 something year old woman who he realized was really not only sexy, but also probably enlightened herself. And they had lots of enlightened sex together on a three year silent meditation retreat in the desert as they translated Tibetan texts from medieval, um, Trans, uh, uh, manuscripts into English and then realized that they were sort of on the path themselves. So he goddessed, that's a verb, he goddessed this woman and they taught on stage together, white guy in red robes, white girl in white robes, um, teaching yoga and meditation and Tibetan Buddhism. And it was all mixed together around the same time as the Tibetan Freedom Concert in the late mid, what was that, 96, I want to think, maybe 98. Maybe later, I don't know. The the timeline's a little off on me right now. And then, as their group grows larger and larger, and they buy some land in Arizona, in you know, on a on an old Apache area, uh, a sacred area for the Apache, they, um, after you've been having sex with your student for a while, you might realize if if when you are a Tibetan Lama or an enlightened cult leader, you might realize that hey. These other ladies are also goddesses too. So he sort of decided to sideline his goddess um, and 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 tried to go get with these other ladies. And they had planned to do another silent meditation retreat together with I think thirty people in the desert. And he had to like kick the woman that he'd brought up, Lama Christy McNally. He had to kick her over to someone else, and he sort of like arranged a marriage with Ian Thorson, who is the guy who eventually ended up dying in the desert, and. And Roach left the retreat. You know, this sounds like a soap opera. It's really funny to sort of go into the minute details here. But Roach leaves the retreat. Well, the Netflix series. This, mm-hmm. this isn't the same one as that. That net, There was a Netflix series in like Wild, Oregon Wild or Country. Somewhere. Do you know what it is? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. OSHA. That's that Wild. Bad? No, a different group. Um, there's tons of these scandals. Um, Wild Wild Country is a great documentary. You should watch it. But the problem with Wild Wild Country is it just said, hey, look at all these crazy incidents that are happening, but not why people will be so captivated by Osho, who is truly a captivating person. Um, but to get back to Roach and McNally, um, Roach goes off. He decides not to do his three-year silent meditation retreat. Christy McNally and Ian Thorson, who are now married and lovers, do go into the mountains and she, because we're already off book, right? We had the guy, the Tibetan guy, the, the white guy who actually studied Tibetan. And then we had this Christy McNally person who's like, well, I need to make my own brand of this Tibetan Buddhism. So she starts borrowing from the Hindu canon and starts um, adding a, a goddess named Kali. Kali is the violent goddess of war, death, and destruction in the Hindu pantheon. And, you know, if you see a picture of her, she's got six arms and like a knife in one hand and a severed head in the other hand. She's a mean lady. Uh, and Hindus do worship her, but they worship her at a distance. They're a little scared about bringing her. You don't, you don't hang a picture of Kali on your, on your wall. It's generally a bad idea. It brings bad luck. She then performs these meditations where they, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, you sort of imagine yourself as be, as beings, as as goddesses, and you you while you're sitting there in a perfect meditation pose, you imagine that your body is the goddess Kali. You've got these arms. You 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 try to think what those arms feel like to have those arms. Uh, and you you think about what it's like to hold the severed head of a god in your hand. And kind of, you really try to embody those feelings and rage and tantra. And the idea in tantra is that instead of just calming yourself. 
as you do in like the meditation that most of us think of. In Tantra, you try to inflame those feelings, inflame all of the emotions. And through that, that building up of emotions, you can go through and get enlightened faster. Uh, it's the quicker way to enlightenment. So she's doing this with her, her then husband, her new husband, and they start practicing a, med- a, 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 a dual meditation where she pretends she's Kali, and I don't remember who he thinks he's thinking he is at that time, and they take out a na- knife, and, and they start knife fighting, and she stabs her husband, Ian Thorson, <gasps> in the chest right here, and, you know, she's also... Inside. Huh? And she's also, you in know, the side, yeah. in the side, yeah, in the Sorry. ribs, in, into the intercostals, yeah. And so, yeah. so at that point, this is a problem because your meditation teacher is also, you know, the one that's trying to get you to bliss is also stabbing her husband in a, in a, in a meditation. And uh, sort of all hell breaks loose in that community. Um, they they are, do manage to, he doesn't die, right? They stitch him up. They find someone to stitch him up secretly. Uh, and then she teaches, so once every year, they'll come out and they'll teach what they've learned on their meditations. Um, so the, she comes out in a blindfold in front of the broader community. There's 100 or 200 people in the audience. And she teaches them. She starts telling everyone how she stabbed her husband in a meditation. And when this goes public, the Tibetan Buddhists out there are like, we got to get her out of there. And so Michael Roach kicks her out of the... Uh, Unteach, make, de-goddesses her again, makes her not a teacher. And she and Ian Thorson, who still have another year left on their meditation retreat, um, end up climbing up to the mountain above the retreat center and start meditating to continue their retreat in a remote cliff instead of like a hut with sort of, you know, people bringing them water and food. It goes south. They start drinking dirty water. She gets dysentery. He nurses her back to health. He gets dysentery and... And does very, very bad. Um, he starts turning purple and white and, you know, his colors are changing and he's dying in front of her. And she deci- has this decision to make. Do I use my cell phone and my personal locator spot beacon? You know, the thing you press the button and the helicopters come to pick you up. Um, she could, she could use that stuff to save his life or she could use her holy powers to bring him out of his diseased state and save him with herself. And at that point, it wasn't only their lives on the line, but in her mind, it was their souls. Doesn't end well for Ian Thorson. About a a day later, he's dead. And she does press the the locator beacon and the helicopters do come and they remove his corpse. Uh, And this is the story that I I, I had to dig into because it had all of these elements of both Eastern spirituality, the search for superpowers, because they're also trying to um, they, they all thought they were Neo in the Matrix, essentially. They all thought that they were going to un- understand the fundamental nature of the universe and bring world peace and things like that. It had all of those elements of a classic gripping cult narrative, but I could also bring in elements of Tibetan theology and, and, and try to teach people how how captivating these ideas are and why someone would even want to get there. And so that was the, that's what the enlightenment trap is about. And if, if I'm going to define that word for you, enlightenment trap, what is it? Anyone who tells you they are trying to seek enlightenment or that they are enlightened is drastically misunderstanding what enlightenment is all about, right? In the, in the Sanskrit, uh, 
uh, bodhi, which is enlightenment, really translates as wisdom, right? It doesn't really translate as like um, uh, a, a final state that you get to. But when enlightenment, that idea comes to uh, the West, it actually happens right after the enlightenment, right? The idea in the enlightenment, you know, you, you sort of go back and you find all these texts, right? Remember in the enlightenment, in the, sorry, it's, it's in the Renaissance, this is what happens. You, you go in and you find these texts in uh, Constantinople and in, in ancient Greece, and you rediscover the writings of Galen, you rediscover the, the writings of Aristotle, Socrates, and then oh, there's this reflourishing of that in, in the West. Enlightenment actually sort of hits Bodhi, the word Bodhi hits Europe around that same time that we're going through this. And the idea is that we can find the lost texts of the East and get a new enlightenment in the West. And it's a weird idea that how this word has made it to America and weighed it to the West. And we then conflated it with heaven. We conflated it with the idea that you can arrive here at a place. It is a place we get to. When in reality, enlightenment is a journey. It's a thing you try to accomplish. It's something you never reach. And anyone who reaches it is, in my opinion, by definition, insane. Right across the board, you don't get... Or a fraud. Yeah, or a fraud, which is sort of the same thing. But yeah, an outright fraud or they're insane, or sometimes usually both. And you can never get five enlightened people in a room, you know, we all understand the true nature of reality and they never shake hands and agree, right? You never find eight cult leaders being like, oh yeah, you're totally right. This is how consciousness flows through the body. And we're, we're, we're they that never happens. They all disagree because the nature of, I mean, of realization is all very individual and located in the, in the individual. It's also the reason why everyone who's enlightened ends up having sex with their students is because once you become enlightenment, enlightened, the trap is you don't have any peers anymore, right? You get to a point and I'm the enlightened when everything I say is perfect and therefore no one can question you. You don't have any friends. You don't, you don't, no, no one's out there being like, well, is that really what the rea- reality is? You're like, no, God tells me or, or, or whatever like that. And so enlightenment in practice is a very isolating moment. And then usually it's men who end up in those places. There are a few women, but the men all then seem to realize that, that they are enlightened and for some reason their penis was right the whole time. And that's why they have sex with all of their students. And they're like, oh, I feel these urges. And and it's it's such a trap. It's and it's so easy to get into because sometimes these people start off actually really impressive, right? Michael Roach started off as a real scholar, as a, as a person who was doing good in the world, and then at that moment that he had this realization that he was a bodhisattva, everything turned to madness, and then people flock to him because they want to hang out with the enlightened person. They want a person who has realized, because that is a goal, right? It's like, oh, if he did it, I can do it too. And and it becomes this sick cycle where it's not only the cult leader who is responsible for this, but it's also the, the group that enables them. This, it's like a, a culty version of the intelligence trap, which is a similarly named book by David Robson that just goes on that theory of the more intelligent you are, the more likely it is that you can go really far wrong because sure. you're smart enough to convince yourself of your own cognitive biases. Um, so you end up with you know Arthur Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes writer who believed in fairies and went really far with that and thought he could talk to all sorts of weird, you know, go on. Yeah, well, he also, Arthur Conan Doyle, when, when Sherlock Holmes died, so he kills off 
um, Sherlock Holmes. And then what? And then he realized he has to write more books. And he brings Holmes back. Where? Where did he go? He was in Tibet studying with the Tibetan lamas. Oh, see, it's all linked together. It's all, it's linked. all linked. I, I think there is. It is this idea, I guess. Yeah, these people are. I mean, I also think they're just very arrogant. It's really arrogant people who are very intelligent uh, and want to be the most enlightened. And then they can just convince themselves of anything. So I guess there's that cognitive dissonance because, like you say, they, they're just, you know, wherever their penis wants to go, it happens to – their mind is able to square that with their spiritual enlightenment. Right. Um, at the same time, this woman, uh, Lama Christy McNally, um, you know, she didn't want to use the locator thing to save um, Ian Thornton. Um, but she was happy to use it the next day when he was dead to save herself in, a, in some respect, you know. So I'm sort of, she's able to sort of square that with herself, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe a reality um, fell on her and she realized that her husband was dead in front of her and this was actually something she couldn't um, reiki up out of nowhere. Um, I also think that one thing is important to note here is that this isn't only a Western problem, right? In the in those traditions, in the Indic traditions, uh, we have tons of charlatans who have shown up throughout the generations. And, you know, there's a guy named Drukpa Kunle, D-R-U-K-P-A space K-U-N-L-E-Y, who is, um, you know, went around Tibet in the 13, sorry, went around Bhutan in the 1300s and basically told everyone he was enlightened and he had sex with all the nuns and all the king's daughters. And if you go to Bhutan today, you'll find his symbol painted on the walls of most houses. And his symbol, if you were to look it up and Google it, Maybe you can put this up in your YouTube video, a picture of Drukpa Kunle's um, symbol. It is an erect phallus that is ejaculating uh, white spooge all over the walls. This is a very common symbol throughout um, Bhutan. And it's clear just by looking at that, that this is um, the same thing as Michael Roach, uh, just cast backwards into medieval Tibet. And, and we find this over and over again uh, in all traditions. And I think that Westerners look at, realize that there's problems in their own tradition, realize there's problems in Christianity, you know, sex ab abuse cases, you know, whatever you want to look at. And then you're like, well, there's got to be an answer somewhere else. And they look to another tradition and they, they start learning it. And then with every, any convert to any religion, those people are the most religious of anybody. If you've ever, this is a, a trend, is that the convert takes on everything and they become sort of fundamentalists. And this is what happens with Westerners who go East, who, who start learning those techniques. They, they try to, because they don't look Hindu or Tibetan, they sort of take on more of it. And, and they also don't realize that there's a whole history to the, the versions of, of, of Buddhism and Hinduism that they're going into. They don't realize that it's a constantly crunched tradition. They don't realize the endless sex scandals that have happened in Tibetan Buddhism. They don't realize that in the, mm, I'm going to forget, I think it's 1200s. Um, they don't realize that the the Galukpa sect, that's the Dalai Lama sect, decided that the Sakya sect, the another version, was uh, not good. So they called in the Mongols to massacre all of them. I mean, we don't realize that there's history in in Tibet. We don't realize that, and and we just think that that it just must be what we imagine it to be, and then we look for that, and then we find our imagination.
orientalism i suppose it is isn't it this like idea that they're you know whether better or worse they're like not human and, and you have to realize they're human they have the same problems that that we do the same issues and the same problems that we might have in christianity or judaism hey have you ever used cheapo air for years and i really like it with cheapo air you can book online use their app or even over the phone they've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations they're my go-to for travel planning and if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. We have, I have that same thing. I'm, I'm Jewish, and my uh, I, I've met over the years many people who converted to Judaism, and they're always much more like into the whole thing, and they, they know everything. Yeah. And you've got to like be careful, like walking in their homes, because you've got to make sure you haven't said the wrong thing and put the right dress <laughs> on your head or wherever. The co- the convert isn't there an expression? Beware the something of a convert. What is that? It sounds like there should be if there is not. Yeah. I've just coined a thing, but where the convert, I think the zeal, the zeal of the converts. Yeah. Well, you look at this in, in, you know, in ISIS, it's the same thing. All these people converted to, to a certain type of Islam and it's the fundamentalist type of a certain version of Islam. And they're like, we are going to go all in. And the reality that we live in, you know, I'm sure that in, in, ISIS utopia, you're not supposed to behead everyone you meet, but you know, they, but they enact this because they have a very specific reading of this. And you know, this cultural misunderstanding happens in every culture, in every tradition. And it's even happening now in India where, so yoga started in India, obviously, and it was a very specific type of thing. Then, then it gets to the West and it's filtered through our Orientalism idea, right? And then it's re-exported back to India, where Indians are like, no oh, way. we're, we're going to do this magical thing and we're going to re-brand re, um, it in an even more weird way. That's one thing that you happened with Osho. It, Osho is not true Indic religion, right? It is Indic religion that then's crunched through Western stuff in Oregon. Then he goes back to India and then reteaches this new repackaged Hinduism. The thing about culture and humanity is that culture is always borrowing. It's always appropriating from other people. And no one has like one claim to true authenticity. Even Tibetan Buddhism in the medieval period, uh, this is like my favorite part of the book. And I'm just going to nerd out with you for a second where I looked at how Tibetan Buddhism got so weird, because it's all about Tantra, which is this really encountering a very magical, very symbolic type of Buddhism. And what happened is when Buddhism 
started in Tibet. Um, it came over on the backs of an Indian monk who made it to Tibet and deposited some uh, manuscripts in a in a in a uh, Jay Sankampa's archives. I think it was Sankampa, and uh, Sankampa didn't didn't convert, but he was like, "Cool, thanks for the translations," and he, and he and he translated. And then eventually, it sort of caught on, and it was the intro level Buddhism. It was the sutras? It was like calm yourself and learn to be a good person, like the golden rule type Buddhism. And Tibetans were like, "Oh my God, I want more of this Buddhism stuff." So they started sending. Um, monks to India and and Tibet to India is a it's a hard walk right right now it's easy but at that point you're you're going over the Himalayas which is hard then there's tigers that are trying to kill you then there's bandits trying to kill you and then you finally get to this monastery where they all hate you because they think you're a, a bumpkin and you have to learn Sanskrit because all the th- texts are in Sanskrit and that takes seven years to learn okay so this is a hard journey to do so then you translate a couple books and you come back to Tibet so f- Let's say 10 years later, you're finally back, you got the books, and then you are the biggest New York Times bestselling monk in the world. They give you monasteries. You get to go around, you get to advise kings, and you're a big deal. So this happened there, and then they kept on sending monks, and then they ran out of texts. Like all the, the, the golden rule stuff disappeared, and then they're like, well, I, I need to get books that people want to read, or else I, this whole journey is worthless to me. And they started getting weirder and weirder texts. They started interviewing like the guy on the street corner who like, you know, charmed snakes and, and all of that stuff. And then we, the, it emerges from the magical traditions of, of India. You get this like sort of weird tantric Buddhism and those become bestsellers in Tibet and they're also able to upsell you like if you do 10,000 mantras and 20,000 prostrations we'll teach you tantra and then tantra becomes this big thing and which is how Tibet metastasizes into this weird religion like this sort of like abstract strange um uh, subset of Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism and then fast forward to the colonial area with the Brits They've explored everywhere. At one point, they thought there were dragons over the next corner, but they went over the next corner, there were no dragons. They explored South America, no magic levitating people, nowhere. And then for the history of colonialism, the last place that the white guys reached was Tibet. Um, And there's a geopolitical reason for that. And they all realized that if they were going to be levitating yogis, they were going to be somewhere and they're going to be in the mountains. And they even looked at the old maps and they, and, and so the Amerigo Vespucci, oh, sorry. Yeah. Amerigo Vespucci, who found, who's named for North and South America, had written on a map that um, Prester John, who is the lost apostle of Jesus, uh, he was, no, not apostle. He's one of the three magi four magi? How many magi did Jesus get? The, the, the people who, who gave gifts with frankincense and myrrh to Jesus when, when he three. was born. Three magi, right? And yeah. when, when he came over, one of those guys' name was John, and he went back and founded his own Christian community somewhere to the east, but no one knew where it was. Amerigo Vespucci said it was there, and when the Westerners arrived in Tibet, they saw everyone in red robes. And they're like, these are, this is the cult. This is the, the offspring of Prester John. It's the lost kingdom. And so there's all this spiritual idea of Tibet. And then you have this, the, the first people who start translating texts is the Theosophical Society. They are the, it's a woman named Madame Blavatsky and Annie Besant. 
and they are the magical traditions. And they're like, we will find these lost texts, we will translate them ourselves. And they had this ideology that is very similar to New Age spirituality in America right now, the, the law of attraction, the idea if you manifest a belief, you will get it. And they went to find that idea in the old texts. And so the first texts that come to America are all translated through this cult of, of people called the Theosophical Society, where Blavatsky would wake up every morning and look at the foot of her bed where there was a basket and there would be letters from these people called the Mahatmas who were somewhere in, in Tibet sending her magical letters that would give her ideas about, the, 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 about spirituality. They translated the Rig Veda. They translated the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They translated the Mahabharata. And that is how we got Eastern spirituality into America, through that lens. What you've just described is audience capture for YouTubers. Because <laughs> I've just been writing about that for this book. I, I'm putting out a book next year about the psychology of secrets. And one chapter is about uh, YouTubers have to keep inventing like sort of new secrets about themselves to reveal so that they, you know, they're constantly having to find more stuff. And you end up having to go for more and more crazy. I mean, there's, there's loads of YouTubers who've gone down that path and they end up going insane in search of not enlightenment, but what's going to work with, sure. you know. And so what you've just described are these people who are going off and they've got to come back with something. And it's got to be more and more. That kind of stress. It's so funny to think that that cycle has been going on for centuries and centuries. Totally, absolutely. And for all you listeners, go check out my YouTube channel, which will be linked down below in the description, scottcarney.com, where I talk <laughs> about all this stuff. And I go crazy, so you'll be great. You'll, you'll, you'll be, feel right at yeah, home. You do. <laughs> you talk brilliantly about it all, actually. I was watching you talk about, um, well, firstly, Kanker Sauce, but uh, Wim Hof as well. Um, and I was going to bring that up earlier, actually, but I don't know much about the whole Wim Hof thing. People go mad for Wim Hof. He does, he's, if anyone who doesn't know, he's a, the Iceman and all about being in cold places and stuff. But it was really interesting how you were saying it works really, really well at the beginning and it does start to wear off once you've been doing it for years and years and you've got to keep going and keep pushing. And it just sounded like so many of these other kinds of, whether it be enlightenment, whether it be a YouTuber or whatever, we get ourselves into these cycles where our bodies seem to adjust. I just talked about my nose spray. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's another example of that. Like at first, it just sort of clears my nose a bit and then I've got to use a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. Just feels like part of the human condition, doesn't it? Right, yeah. It's what I call the law of speedy gains, right? uh, it's, uh, and which is also the law of diminishing returns. Something helps you at first and then it sort of tapers off. And what you need to do is um, get the gain and then, and then leave when it starts to taper and do other things. And your nose spray addiction is part of this and, you know, we could probably have a off-air conversation on how to work with that because I do a lot of breath work now because I did meet, I was the first person to find Wim Hof. I wrote a New York Times bestseller about him. I was the reason why he got famous. Does he thank you? No, he doesn't. Oh, no, he certainly doesn't. In fact, he's um, trying to take all of my YouTube channel off the internet because I'm about to release... Shut up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all they're all attacking me on, on, and, and it's insane. It's, it's totally insane. Check out my video, um, It's Mine, Not Whims, which is now, I think, only on Rumble because it's, I was hit with eight, no, ten false copyright um, strikes by Anam Hoff, who's Wim Hof's son, who hates me because I'm starting to tell the truth. And I, ha I should have an article out in, I don't know when you're airing this video, but uh, I have a video coming out soon, very soon um, with, uh, yeah, actually, maybe it's going to come out in the same time that this video comes out which is all about uh, 
how Wim Hof, when I, when I initially wrote about him, was like, he's not a cult. This stuff works because it does work. But now there's a whole bunch of people who are dead because of uh, the Wim Hof method. And there's a huge lawsuit against him. And I'm about to release all of the information about um, how Wim Hof method actually might be a cult. So uh, oh. coming soon on YouTube, scottcarney.com, whatever. <laughs> I don't even know what my channel is. I'll but, put a link yeah, to that yeah, in, yeah. The, in the description as well as your channel in general. I'll put a Great. link to that video. What, who's, who's, what's one example of someone who died from it? Uh, a lot of people are drowning because of the Wim Hof method because Wim Hof met, um, continues to teach uh, that he should hyperventilate in water, which is a well-known, very, very dangerous thing to do. And uh, even though he knows it's killing people, he continues to do it. He actually emailed me, he messaged me 10 minutes before we got on this conversation saying that 20,000 people die every year from drowning. Why? This was just one person. Um, so why do we care, basically? Um, and yeah, it's, it's a real problem because people start to believe their shit. They start to look, they, 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 you get to the isolated point where everyone says you're so great, you, you figured something out, you defied science, and some of that's true about Wim, but it's just a sliver, right? The guy is still crazy. And, and it's interesting to see the rise from somebody who was like, pretty genuine and humble at the beginning, turn into something which is now millions of people are following. There's Goop, uh, Joe Rogan, like he's on all of the, the, the podcasts and the, he has a movie coming out about him and now how he is isolated and believes all his own stuff. And I think it's maybe it's an inevitable thing with fame uh, where you know, any to anyone who gets too famous, again, they have to invent new things. They have to sort of push the boundaries and they, they, they just want that affirmation. And the thing is, we don't produce groundbreaking stuff at the rate that YouTube wants it, right? We don't, we, we, we're not, life is a slow process uh, and the demands on people are, are probably too much. That's why you need an interview show. I think, because if, if people who are just trying to produce stuff that's either about themselves in particular, that's very dangerous. Right. Uh, but also just like, you know, here's a new idea I've got and so on. Whereas I just get to people comment on YouTube and they say, hey, you should interview Scott Carney. That's what that's some, somebody said that. And oh, I went, cool. oh, OK, I'll email him. Huh. I didn't have to sort of go, what can I make up and invent from right. out of nowhere? So it's fortunately that's it doesn't have quite the same cycle with the audience, um, you know, that audience capture. But it's I can certainly see how it how it can happen. Sure. Well, for, in my case, in my case, what I did is I have five books out before I decided to start my YouTube channel. <laughs> so I'm crunching through that. I'm crunching through 20 years of material, but eventually I'll get to that point um, where I'll be like, yeah, I got nothing anymore. And I hope I'm start interviewing people. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. <laughs> Thank you, Scott Carney, for coming on the podcast. Make sure to get The Enlightenment Trap. Check out his YouTube channel as well. Just search for Scott Carney. Look at his other books as well. Really interesting. Interesting, lovely guy. And I'm going to get him back on the podcast at some point, I think, probably to talk about some of that um, uh, organ trafficking and all of that stuff. So very edgy, edge-like content. As I said, coming up on the podcast, there are episodes on sex trafficking and another one on revenge porn. We're moving a little away from some of the Scientology-like and Royals stuff just to mix up the podcast hope you guys enjoy that change for the next week or two and we'll see what comes after that i don't know yet do support the podcast if you're enjoying it on patreon.com slash andrew gold you get a saturday episode as well bonus episode uh, and also all of these episodes are ad free 
Well, I think that's all I've got to say, really. Have a lovely time of it, whatever you're up to. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.